Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Hannah Turner, who's an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia in the School of Information and is the new editor of Museum Anthropology. We'll be discussing cataloging culture, legacies of colonialism in museum documentation. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, this to begin with, is an incredibly well-timed book, which is a slightly kind of strange thing to to say about an academic book, given they take years to research, years to write, years to publish. Um, But I think you've really kind of hit on the moment um, and and the kind of key idea, perhaps, that that is both challenging museums, um, but also museums are, are, are really attempting to to, to kind of get involved with and, and, and to, you know, to, to embrace. And I suppose the place to start with um, is if, if you could kind of explain what decolonization is and, and, and perhaps in the course of explaining it, kind of give a sense of your particular approach and, and your kind of um, take on the material elements of, of decolonization. Yeah, for sure. So, well, thank you about the, the well-timed book. Yeah. Um, for me, and I, I think I say this in, in the first chapter, but decolonization really is, for me and in North America in particular, about um, the return of land uh, back to indigenous communities of origin and other material um, returns or, um, yeah, thinking about how we can improve you know, the livelihoods in Canada in particular of indigenous communities. So I, I use the term hesitantly in the book, and I, I usually only use it in reference to other authors uh, who are speaking about decolonization from their indigenous perspectives. So there's been a lot of conversation about the use of the term itself in the context of museum catalogs, um, because although I think it's important, the sentiment is important, um, considering the legacies of colonialism, for example, and the ways in which colonialism is still enacted in practice. I'm not convinced that decolonization is you know, the perfect word for that. However, it's being used, as you rightly note, within this field, quite broadly to denote the kind of repatriation work that's going on, the kind of thinking critically about cataloging as a process and a practice, and one that is sort of moored in deep colonial epistemologies. So for me, that's where I see my work. But yeah, I, I do think it's a complicated and complex term not one for me to maybe pontificate on. No, I mean, I mean, the book um, r- really gets into those 
complex questions and, and you know, literally in the title, you know, is the idea of the leg- legacy of colonialism, not, not just actually in, um, again, in the title, you know, in museum documentation, but, but also in the kind of the everyday practices that make up a museum and also the kinds of, I suppose, decisions that go into what counts and, and what doesn't as a museum object and what, you know, what should be collected, what should be stored and uh, what, you know, is, is given the status um, within collections. And, and in order to do this, I, I guess the book is a story of kind of case studies, um, particularly of um, the Smithsonian um, and uh, the National Museum of, of, National, of Natural uh, History. Um, and I wonder if you could kind of sketch out, I mean, listeners will know what they are, but, but I wonder if you can uh, sketch out maybe why they were interested and why you, you were kind of using them as case studies. Yeah, um, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll, I'll try and give you a short version. So I had begun in my master's, I was working on a project called the Reciprocal Research Network, which is um, essentially a collaborative database that was developed um, out of or, or with three co-developing communities in the Northwest Coast and uh, the Museum of Anthropology at UBC. So I was working with Susan Rowley there, and we were really interested um, in trying to make collections information more accessible. This was back in 2008. And so there wasn't a lot actually online in terms of an easily searchable database. The, the internet just looked very different back then, if anyone can remember. And museum databases were kind of janky and, and really difficult to use without specialized terminology or knowledge of the institution, really. So that project is ongoing, and I suggest um, anyone who's interested, check it out. But I uh, began working then very early with the Smithsonian. They were one of our partners on that project, uh, amongst you know a, a whole host of other institutions in North America. And so that was the kernel of this idea, really, was to say, okay, we're working in between museum systems and community knowledge and research desires and requests. And there was this conflict, really, a kind of ontological conflict in my mind about what counted as information and what counted as sort of expert knowledge. And in some ways, it was almost unsolvable. Um, And the manifestation of that in the project was that there are basically just two records, one that has information that maybe community researchers and indigenous researchers would want to see, and then the museum's documentation, which often included maybe outdated information, um, maybe, you know, question marks. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the missing information. And so that really began my graduate work and my PhD, where I was thinking about this issue, which is what makes knowledge authoritative, in particular in museums, and what does this have to do with the colonial legacies of these institutions and these nations? And so I wanted to look at a national museum, really, one that had explicitly collected material cultural belongings from indigenous communities, partly because I'd already been working in that kind of area, and also because it seemed like there was kind of reparative work that could be done uh, there, especially as a white settler woman. So I felt that studying up, you know, which is a term from science and technology studies um, at a large institution might make certain things visible in a way, and I could bring visibility to these histories. So that's sort of why I, I began working at the Smithsonian. And when I got there uh, in my PhD, I ended up working with a woman named Candace Green, 
who is and was the collections manager of the anthropology department. She's now retired. And she'd actually been asking the very same questions of her own system. So she was curious about why the database looked a particular way. What was the history of terms, categories, and fields to record material culture? And I guess for me, it was like from both perspectives, there was a system in place that didn't accurately represent the breadth and importance of these belongings, both to communities and the museum. And that's really when I began looking at those historical aspects of knowledge organization. So this the Smithsonian in itself is both a national institution, but it was also actively in the you know 1800s, actively soliciting collections from indigenous communities in North America. So it was the scientific research institute that was in what I kind of detail in the book, sort of imposing a kind of narrative about what counts as evidence uh, in this endeavor. So it's both historical in my own life and also because of the way the institution developed and what it was interested in collecting uh, early on in its history. I mean, what, what's notable about the book is, is the way that, as you described, the kind of the imposition um, of, of, of a particular narrative and, and collecting uh, choices as, as well really depend on particular material practices. Um, and this we'll kind of see as, 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 as we discussed that the various kind of material practices change over time, but there are kind of fascinating continuities. And I guess maybe if we do kind of, you know, three moments that the book grapples with the initial, I, I guess, kind of set of practices are recording books and ledgers. Um, and you try and detail, I guess, the way that recording books and ledgers um, create objects of knowledge. And, and it'd be interesting to hear um, how those um, objects themselves, you know, I got the impression from the book, you know, we, we could really easily see um, the, the ledgers and, you know, the, the, the record books as things that would go on display in museums now, um, even though they were kind of, you know, technologies of cataloging back back then. So, yeah, what, what was their role in, in creating objects of knowledge, the, the role of these material objects? Oh, that's a great question. Well, just for, yeah, some context, the ledger books or recording books, I mean, these were common across most institutions prior to the 1800s, really, around the world. But what struck me about the Smithsonian's use of them, or I guess my, the inferred use, so as much I can infer into the 1800s, uh, what was happening, was um, the imposition of these scientific, this sort of concept of science as um as a practice at the time. So the ledger books used to record material culture um, were really just the headings, the, you know, the entire organization of them were really taken from the zoological ledgers, the sort of other hard sciences in the institution. And I mean, really, that's how ethnology developed as a practice in this time as well, which is the science, imposing the language of science to study human beings. Um, and so, as I say in the book, to do this, in order to make a scientific study out of something, you had to have the tools of science, right? The methodologies. And for me, the ledgers really were just an essential part of that methodology. And so they replicate fields and terminologies in the, in the scientific books, and they're brought sort of into the anthropology, to, well, which was then the ethnology um, department in the institution to just record material culture as if it was, you know, uh, a bug or a bird specimen or something like that. 
So I found firstly that interesting, that moment where they become this sort of document of an epistemology of what material culture was and how human beings, you know, actual humans lived in relation to their belongings, which is very different from the way we think of material culture now, I would argue. Um, although there's, again, this legacy there. So that's why they're interesting to me. And they also change over time. So the fields and the headings used in these documentation, in these ledgers, changes as the discipline changes and uh, as they start refining and revising what counts, what information they need to record about material culture and, and therefore what counts as an object in the collection. And then what becomes interesting about the ledgers is also that information that's recorded just sort of jotted down uh, in these headings and these like very minimal amount of space to actually write becomes what is used and then the catalog record. So the ledger, they would have been potentially with the object and then writing down key ideas or essential points about it, for example, in the institution. And as time moves on, they're referring just back to that documentation. Um, and so it would be rarer that you would actually spend time with an object and catalog, catalog it anew, let's say, into the card, card catalog or even the modern database. So they seem to have this sort of special place, both within the practice of the institution and for me within this sort of like larger debate or discussion, I should say, around what is science at the time? How is material culture being brought to stand as evidence in a particular way? Which I think has ramifications, obviously, for today. So yeah, that's why I think they're interesting documents. And obviously they, you know, the, the practices associated with them changes over time. And, and I suppose I've got a couple of um, change over time questions, which is at the core of the book. Mm -hmm. One thing that I should say about the book is it, it's incredibly rich with this kind of fascinating cast of characters as well as um, a, a range of different material practices along with specific collections. And, and maybe one way of illustrating change over time would be, uh, is it the Huna repatriation collection, which is one of the case studies in, in chapter two. Um, and it'd be interesting to know, uh, I guess, a bit about that collection and how that shows the sort of uh, the development from books and ledgers into things uh, like making drawings of objects. And then it sort of foreshadows the rise of the, um, the kind of card-based catalogs that come later. Yeah, that's a great question. So I look at this particular repatriation collection. And the reason I should say I look at it is because when I got to the institution to do my work, I um, was working with Eric Collinger at the, in the repatriation department. So just a shout out to Eric is that this was his real work was to look at this particular collection. They were really 3D scanning and had just like lathed a copy of a, um, of a piece called the, um, killer whale hat called Kitsa, which you can actually see on the Smithsonian's website. So I kind of got to the institution while they were doing all this sort of emerging technological work with repatriation collections. They were essentially making a copy of this headdress to keep in the institution. And I believe it's still on display there at the, at the museum. So they could return the actual headdress back to the, the community. So the Huna collection was a similar collection. They were interested in thinking about how they could protect a group of objects that had were sort of at risk of being lost. Um, there was a fire 
in an institution in Huna. And so they were, they were curious about this kind of moment. So I was following along and I was like, oh, this is really interesting, this idea that you can document a collection through 3D printing. Um, and I was became interested in the history of that, in particular that collection. So that's how I got to study that repatriation collection. So when I was there, the collection would, had been returned or was, or was being in the process of being returned to the Huna community. And I um, started looking into the history of that process. And what became really interesting was this, this moment. So what happened with that collection was that it was collected by men named Timothy Dixon Bullis, who was a you know, U.S. Navy guy. <laughs> what do they call them? Navy men. And um, he was actually living and traveling around Alaska at the time and was doing some collecting, partly because the Smithsonian uh, had these circulars. They would request collections from people just like him as they were out sort of exploring in this, in this time of, you know, exploration. And so he, you know, shipped these objects back to the Smithsonian on a train car. They arrived in two boxes and they were slowly unpacked at the institution and recorded in ledger books, probably by an assistant of Otis Mason, who was the curator of ethnology, I believe, at the time. His role changed over the history of the institution. But it was a really good collection to sort of follow from start essentially to finish when it was returned. Um, and the documentation is really interesting because it's both, it's recorded in the ledger books and then Timothy Dixon Bullis actually comes to the institution to quote, quote unquote, study up the collection, which is an interesting term and begins like recording information he has about it as a, sort of an observer and a traveler and works with Otis Mason in this regard. And then the card catalogs are created maybe around this time, just after this time, as Otis Mason, the curator, becomes really interested in what he calls this like problem of chaos in the collection. He says, look, we have these ledger books that list everything one by one, essentially by accession, which is the moment they came physically came into the collection, were unpacked. But there was no way to go and find, let's say, all the spoons or um, to sort of do cross-reference searches. And so he starts working with the card catalog, which comes from the library sciences in the Smithsonian Library and has been used variously in Europe as well, which is this index, he calls it the indexable catalog. It's sort of a catalog of everything, um, which is what we think of when we think of flipping through card catalogs in those drawers you can pull out. And so that's around 1900. And yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see how information moves between the two forms. So I was really interested in the migration of of data, you could say, of this information from the ledger book to the card catalog and the decisions that are made about what gets left out. And what also occurred to me at this time and in working with um, Eric at the Smithsonian and, and with this history was that ditto marks in the ledgers become really important because they were often used as a way to say, oh, this is the same kind of thing. You know, there's three model poles, for example, in the collection. So Instead of recording new information about them, I'll just write ditto, ditto, ditto. And that doesn't ever really get translated. What happens is it becomes the same kind of object. And when dealing with repatriation requests, you actually need to define which object came from where. And they often rely on the historical ledgers as sort of the first point of where the original information would have been input into, the, in, into this sort of system. So that was one way that I saw, in particular with that collection, this sort of interesting move between ledgers, card catalogs, and then the eventual return 
you mentioned the kind of migration of data, which is a, is a fascinating term. And and if there are, you know, two, two moments, ledgers into cards, and then, um, you know, you sort of vividly illustrated that idea of, you know, cards in drawers, which is a, a classic um, kind of technology of storing information that, the obvious kind of next thing, which um, is, is later on in the book, is computerization. Um, and, and I guess the attempt to kind of grapple with, um, as, as you've alluded to, you know, a, a kind of a fairly sort of messy archive and to make it, you know, standardized, systematized, searchable, cross-referenceable, this this kind of thing. And, and again, you know, a precursor to that is the shift from handwriting to, to, to typing and, and and things like this. So, so I, I wonder if you could, like, you know, it, it's a huge amount of time that I'm, I'm asking you to comment on. But I wonder if you could sort of summarize the impact of of computerization and and how things, you know, both shifted but also had continuities within um, the institution. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and it is a long time. I mean, I think so. We're talking from the development of the card catalog, which is about 1900 at this institution. Um, all the way up until computerization, which is about 1970. You know, it's, it's a long time. But in between, there were two world wars. <laughs> there was a lot of halts on collections, and there was a lot of changes in the sort of the world, you know, the the, the relationship between the United States and other nations uh, had changed. So collecting also changed, and a lot of the processes, um, what, I, what I noticed was, a lot of the processes remained fairly stable throughout that time in terms of collections management. Um, the card catalog was essentially used as the main index of the collection, basically until computerization. So it's a long period of time, but because I look at the, the material technologies, there isn't a ton of change. There's a little bit I document in the book. And of course, maybe somebody will come and do more research on this and prove me wrong one day. But based on what's in the archives, it kind of remains stable um, in, in a way. So by, by the time, obviously, typewritten card catalogs come in, as you noted, I should say, yes, there was handwritten catalogs, which we no longer have access to archivally. We just have the typewritten ones. So there is a bit of assumption going on that I, I do, of course. Um, but yeah, computerization is really interesting. And, and that's really why I came to study this, because I was interested in the decisions that need to be made around making a computer do something for you, which is that you need to code in, especially at this time in the 70s, like a set of accepted terms. You can search maybe by one term, let's say basket, and it would return you know, hundreds of thousands of baskets just listed one by one in these big printed out sheets. And Dr. Green, Candace Green at the institution sort of recalled in our conversations how you would have to go to a processing unit which was down the street from the institution on the mall and like pick up your prints that showed you and it was just pages and pages and pages I think she recalls using a wheelbarrow to bring back the the actual paper printouts of the query the you know the result of the query she had made into the collection just to see what was there because one human being can't walk through a million objects and find all the baskets you know so both computerization had this brilliant capability you know you could what for one for the first time really find everything in the collection that had a particular keyword associated with it whether that was item type or baskets or 
Um, conservation status was really important as well, what it was made of, for example, metal, wood, that kind of stuff. And I should just say that Ross Perry wrote a really amazing book about that includes a lot of the discussion of early computing at the Smithsonian. So I'll just um, remind everyone it's an older book now, but he's my colleague. So um, that really details like the history of the early computing system in the wider Smithsonian. But in terms of the anthropology database, um, what was happening was this computerization came in, the system cell gym, it was a very basic system. And it was one of the first, I think maybe even the first museum database system. And there's historical reasons for that because the servers they were using to send people to space were sort of on the same grounds as the Smithsonian, right? It's all in DC. And so there was this connection between the government, um, what was going on as government projects in early computing in the United States and these national institutions were sort of located in the same space using very similar infrastructure. So that's fascinating. But um, this idea that you had to have a search and find system presented a lot of problems because it meant that, first of all, there could you could be for the first time seeing all of the inconsistencies in the data that you never would have seen unless you had one by one gone through every single index card or walked through the collection. And then it also presented uh, like new access to the collection. And what changes over time from you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s is just increased access for people who would never have had access before to the collection. And that includes indigenous communities. At the same time, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and the NNAI Act, the National Museum of American Indian Act, become sort of constituted in law in the 90s and the late 80s and 90s. And what this means, this is the repatriation legislation that gets um, that sort of becomes really important in the history of museums in North, in North America, and particularly the States. And so all of these things are sort of happening around the same span of 20, 30 years. And with NAGPRA in particular, it meant that, okay, now we need to find all of the objects that are associated with particular um, bands, particular indigenous communities, you know, tribally or nationally recognized tribal organizations. And we have to actually go into the collections and find where all those things are. And this sort of forced the institution to do an inventory of the collection, which just wouldn't have been possible um, by hand, essentially, because by that time there were just too many objects. And so the system itself had to sort of be reconfigured and they were doing a lot of thinking around, okay, what's a search term? How are we going to find tribal affiliation within this system we have when it has been poorly recorded essentially throughout time? You know makers and you know family names and things like that were not necessarily recorded in the ledgers in the 1800s and so there was a lot of work using this system this computerized system to make sure that they were organizing the terms in the authority files correctly so that the computer could actually perform the searches that they needed it to perform so for me computerization is really fascinating because it really is the system in, in the 80s is really just a amalgamation of the ledgers and the catalog cards and maybe some new research that was going on. But it really forced the people in the institution to deal with these legacies in an interesting way. I'm interested to know, I suppose, what the, how would I phrase it, what, what the limits of, of that um, attempt to, to kind of get to grips with um, the 
legacy of, of, of the collection practices and, and record keeping practices are in the context of things like repatriation. And, and you mentioned like the Huna uh, example was, was, was perfect on this. And, and I guess as a way of sort of beginning to wrap up our conversation, what does, I suppose, this material culture story of how the institution had, had dealt with uh cataloging its collections tell us in the context of something like a repatriation request i guess you know in some ways it's been made possible um you know because it's possible to now know the collection (laughs) without a wheelbarrow (laughs) for each each query but at the same time the kind of legacies of uh, what was counted as knowledge and what wasn't counted as knowledge over 100 years ago is, is still with us when repatriation requests come in? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's kind of the key issue, I think, which is this, okay, we have this historic documentation, this historical knowledge, whatever that means. It's from a particular you know, colonial epistemology. And yet we need to repair this history, whether that's through repatriation or through other means, which I think we're looking at now, as you said, in this sort of time we're in now this decolonizing the catalog sort of, I don't know, zeitgeist. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think that's why I'm interested in it. It seems to be a complete um, conflict of interests, essentially, which is that we need to maintain the historical documentation and take it as serious because it could contain information that would be useful in repatriation requests, right? Um, at the same time, we want to be able to recognize the sort of racist colonial assumptions that are present in that data. And I think this is going to sound crazy, but it's like a case by case (laughs) basis. Um, So for me, it's, it's really about at least acknowledging that even the repatriation laws, and there's a lot of work being done on this now in the States in particular, because it is a federal, a federal law, um, which is unlike any other nation, I believe most um, like in Canada and in the UK, there's no legislated repatriation um, governance, for example. It's really on this case-by-case basis. Um, but in the States, it's, it's legislated. So I think that's changing and, and understanding the historical roots of even that legislation is important. So um, Marge Bruchak, Margaret Bruchak has wrote, written a great book called Savage Kin, which I mention in my book. Um, which sort of makes this argument, which is to say, even the categories of NAGPRA. So NAGPRA stipulates particular object categories that can be returned. So it's funeral, associated funeral goods, they call them objects, and then human remains and other objects that are used currently in religious practice. And so those are the kind of objects that are granted the special classification that they need to be returned. But everything else, you know, is, is sort of in this gray area. And she, she really argues in that book at the end of the book, which is to say, you know, these, these object categories were defined by the system of oppression, you know, this colonial epistemology. And so using these in order to return our material heritage is problematic. And, and that's just one way that it plays out in, in the States. Um, which is say the very categories themselves, you know, religious object, funerary associated object, these things are defined in a particular way by a particular worldview. And it's that worldview that needs updating essentially. 
But in terms of the question, which maybe we're getting at, but uh, I'll turn to now, which is, is historical documentation important? And, and at what point do we get rid of it or, or input new information? I mean, I think this is the question and it's difficult to answer unless it's a case-by-case basis. Um, I think looking deeply at unofficial documentation, where unofficial documentation is, making sure it's accessible to those who might need it, inviting non-traditional researchers to look at collections and non-academics, artists, et cetera, is a good start. Um, Aside from, you know, making sure you're hiring practices and you have a safe and equitable workspace for people of color and indigenous people being the most important thing in an institution. But yeah, it, it is a it is the question. I think. I suppose that's a, a the beginnings of a of a guide for what institutions can do and, and how institutions can can sort of respond better. Um, and and obviously, you know, kind of working with researchers is is crucial there, both to um, critique as as you've done in the book um, the sorts of record keeping uh, that we've got, and you know, the kind of legacy of how some of these practices started. But I wonder, to, to, to kind of conclude, have you got, I, I suppose, you know, a direct advice? Um, you know, you mentioned things like like hiring and, and the working environment, but have, have you got direct advice for, for museums? And is, is that something that you're sort of working on now, you know, in, in terms of, of maybe uh, applying the book um, to the museum context? Um, or are you thinking about kind of completely different things in terms of your your next set of work? Um, think, yeah, thanks for that. Well, in terms of direct advice, um, at least what I've been hearing as I've been sort of on this weird virtual book tour this year is is that call. Everybody wants to know, really. And I think just keeping in mind, I mean, I say this again as a white settler woman who maybe has no place to say anything at all, but I think that reminding yourself what the um what decolonization decolonization is actually for people for the people whom it matters so indigenous people particularly um or people of color working in collections from you know historically colonized places um is to think about the return of land and by that i mean like where is your institution whose land is it on and if you're somewhere far far away (laughs) like in the uk from the people whose belongings you're working with, thinking about those connections as well. Um, But certainly in Canada and North America, I think returning to that, that reminding yourself that it's about land and the removal of people from land and their relationship to it. So in terms of like institutionally, what sort of activisms can you engage in outside of the collections documentation? But aside from that sort of bigger picture project, I think just thinking deeply about the history of your collections and in particular the information, taking into account that we're, we're not taking it you know, at its word, essentially at face value. And I, I think that's actually really important to say that what are the ways that our authority has been crafted over time um, and how does that have how does that play out now and it will be different in every single institution so spending research time on this um hiring people to do these kinds of investigations i think is actually really important and then paying attention to these like hidden histories um, of institutions that may not have been given due concern um so for me those those seem to be where we're headed and 
are the most interesting projects for me. I'm thinking about sort of the um, the connections. I, I can't remember the name of the project, but the uh, slavery connections to national historic sites in the UK, like that seems like a really important and interesting project that is, you know, furthering that kind of work, which is telling the stories <laughs> that have not, not been heard about those sites. Um, but, and then in terms of collections record keeping, just making sure, you know, for people who are funding these things, collections documentation is real work. And, you know, it's been, the funding has been cut from cataloging and registration for a long time and in order to sort of look at exhibitions and the bigger or broader projects. But to remember to include that as an important part of the reparative work of the institution, if you're, you know, writing a grant or hiring people or giving money, that that actually counts as real work. And, um, is important intellectual work as well and has ramifications. I think that would be my main thing. And I know there's certain projects that are popping up that I see that are doing that amazing work, like I, like the work of provenance, really trying to connect records to the originating communities. It takes a long time. Some of it can be very mundane, but it is really important, I think. So that, that would be my advice. And, and what about a book in this area from you, you know, that those kind of top tips sound like they'd be really useful. In um, yeah, I just, I feel like I just finished this book. So maybe another book is, is further down the road, but what I am working on, I can say now is I work, I'm working on a few grant projects um, that I'm excited about. One is called sort of based in this idea of artist practice and looking at emerging te- emerging technologies to foster return. I work with uh, Dr. Kate Hennessy at the um, at SFU, Simon Fraser University, and an artist, Jad Kuju, here, who's a Kwakwakwakaida artist and weaver, to document her weaving. And um, we've actually created sort of a, a digital facsimile of the weaving that's on, on exhibit now. So I'm sort of in this sort of weird art world a little bit as the, the facsimile is circulating instead of the original piece, which was returned um, to, Ma- uh, to Jad Kuju. Megan O'Brien is her other name. And that's exciting. We're just starting that project. And the other thing I'm, I'm interested in is I've started working with a local institution here, the Museum of Vancouver, um, on a project called The Work of Repair. Uh, so it's just starting. And for that project, I'm really concerned with local history here in British Columbia, where I am and where I grew up also, um, to try and understand the Canadian cataloging history. So looking more at the Canadian um, the national projects that were going on in Canada around recording uh, material culture and working at that institution to to understand its own histories of documentation. And there's just so much that has not been recorded, you know, that's in the institution that needs to be looked at, needs to be archived properly. I mean, it's the sort of backlog of, of work and I'll be following um, that work and working with some research assistants there to also understand like the reparative work that that museum is doing and in the context of repatriation and, you know, recataloging the collection or potentially reorganizing the collection to make it more accessible to community, which is really the main point of that, of the work that's being done there by um, a woman named Dr. Sharon Fortney, who is the indigenous curator, curator of indigenous collections, I believe. And then Dr. Vivian Goslin, who's there as well. So it's kind of amazing. Um, but it's, it's just the beginning of a longer project. So I can't say if it'll be a book, but I'm, I'm staying more local, I will say. <laughs>